You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. This is a podcast from comedianscomedian.com. This is the Comedian's Comedian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith and today I am thrilled to be talking to Jeremy Dyson, the fourth member of the League of Gentlemen, the one who was very rarely in the show apart from the odd cameo and uh, who in the meantime since then has been working on, among other things, co-creating a successful, very successful West End show which has now become a movie which is called Ghost Stories, and it's released this weekend. So I hope you get along to see it, having listened to this conversation with its co-creator, along with the accompanying uh, episode of this podcast uh, with Mr. Andy Nyman. This is Jeremy Dyson. Let's start by talking about Ghost Stories mm-hmm. and the the collaborative nature of it. Let's talk about working with Andy Nyman, with the great Andy Nyman, who's just walked out of this room. Indeed, the great Andy Nyman. You've been, I didn't realise that you you were childhood friends. Yeah, and that's the curious thing is, you know, is we absolutely, we we grew up together, we were best friends from sort of age 15 onwards when we, when we first met. And, um, but then we had these independent careers and it never really occurred to us to work together um at all until I mean I, I I think idly we might have had conversations you know around nine, about 20 years ago like wouldn't it be nice but no, nothing more than like one or two idle conversations you know and and so he would, was on his track as an actor and then latterly with the magic as well uh, alongside the acting and and you know I mean I was I was writing uh, comedy and um, and everything that came from that. So when he called me with with the seed of what became Ghost Stories, it was um, it was interesting, and, and it was it came at a really interesting time for me because I'd you know been we'd stopped doing the league, uh, I'd done Funland, I had a kind of crazy time in the latter days of the league where it was really packed. I was doing two things at the same time. And then I, then I kind of lost my way a bit coming out of the league. You know, I've been doing League of Gentlemen for 10 years. And uh, and Funland was kind of part of the back end of that. And then uh, I sort of lost sight of the core of who I was, I think. This is all with retrospect, in retrospect saying that. And so the call from Andy was like, you know, it was like a gift from the gods because it was, it, it was like getting me back on track from my point of view, it, you know, he said he'd had this idea for um, uh, for a play with three men telling ghost stories, uh, and this was inspired by two things: one, him walking past the woman in black and thinking, "Why is there only one scary play?" <laughs> on him? It's insane that there's only one scary play on in the West End, and the other was that he'd been to see the vagina monologues and got bored within about three minutes, and. Um, but then sat there thinking, God, somebody's making a mint out of this. Three casts sat there reading, not even having learnt it. 
I want, and I wonder if you could do this. I wonder if you could adapt that model and do it with ghost stories. So that's, that was basically what he rang me with. And immediately I thought, oh, that sound, that, that's, that would be fun. And uh, so then we sort of got together, chatted about it. It was all very loose. And then after about, there was a year of us kind of very, you know, intermittently emailing each other. So I sent him some of my favourite um, ghost stories. And, you know, he sent me little bits of things he'd written, little vignettes and scenes and ideas. And it was very loose and we had no sense of what the thing was going to be. Or even if we were going to commit to it, it was it was just in between other stuff. But then the genius thing that happened was we... Um, uh, we Andy's friend, Sean Holmes, who's a brilliant director Andy had worked with on stage, had just got the job at the Lyric, as taking over as artistic director at the Lyric Theatre Hammersmith. And Andy had already talked to him about this, this kind of nascent idea, and uh, which Sean was really interested in. And he called us in on his first day in the job, asked, questioned us about it. And we already had enough of a sense of the kind of thing that we wanted to do without any idea of what the story would be. And there and then, massive balls on his part, he programmed it. He said, right. <laughs> Money he, where your mouth is. He said, a year from today, it's on. Oh, and it was so brilliant because by doing that, well, one, it was a massive vote of confidence in both of us, which was the sort of boost that we needed, I think. Somebody was taking us seriously. And two, because we were both busy, always busy with other stuff, it would have been the easiest thing in the world for it just to have remained a pipe dream. And he got that as well, I think. And he sort of saw an opportunity in it. And he knew that that was the way to make it happen. And it was the most exciting thing because it was the opposite of television commissioning, you know, yeah, where, okay. where, you know, which I was completely caught up in on the, you know, the miserable <laughs> exercise bike of that, you know, where you write scripts, send them in, they don't get made. And so this was the opposite of that. It was so exciting to think, oh, God, well, we write it and then we're going to do it. And you already have all of these conversations that you'd had, the yeah. things you've sent each other yeah. remotely. So then, so then the thing became, that was like January, and we didn't, neither of us had any time till July. That was the thing. <laughs> okay. Where we could sit down and, uh, and just get a, a clear two weeks. And we blocked two weeks out in the diary in July to, uh, to write, uh, start writing, outlining it, whatever this thing was that we didn't know it was going to, had no idea what it was going to be. And, and then about two weeks before, Andy rang me up. He said, you know, we've got two weeks blocked. He said, I think I can only do a week of that. And I said, thank God, I can only do a week as well. So then we had the same week. But the thing was, his family were going away. So I can't, and I live in Yorkshire, not London. So I came down to stay for that whole week. And that was the thing. is we, It was just us for like five days. And, and again, because we'd, cause we'd tilled the earth and sowed the seed, we'd, without realising it, we'd done a, a tonne of work. You know, it was, it was imaginative work. And this is, here's a little writing tip about, you know, so much of the work of writing happens when you are not doing it. And that's why it's really important that you put the hours in when you do, because that's what exactly what you're doing is you're not actually doing the work. You're preparing the soil and the work happens when you're not thinking about it. 
And that's what we'd done. You know, we'd had a year of that. It sounds like the perfect way to make a thing. Well, funnily enough, you come across it in so many other people's stories. I remember talking to... I did a talk with... um, Oh, what's it? The playwright that did the adaptation of Warhorse, um, Nick, I can't remember his surname, and we were talking about it afterwards. And he was talking because they we, they were around the same time, and he said he had just a very similar experience. The way the National had done that is it was loads of workshops and it was very loose and it was over a long period of time, and that's what had allowed it to come out as strongly as it did. That, in his opinion, that's what it felt like because there'd been that space in which you knew it was happening, so mentally you were committed to it, it wasn't provisional, and there was the space there to explore, to play, and that was exactly what had happened with me and Andy. And then you hear about it, you know, like I remember reading about, or Andy telling me about um, Book of Mormon, you know, where they'd ha- they basically self-funded all the development, and they did, I don't know, nine workshops or something, you know, a huge amount of work because obviously they're wealthy and have the resources to do that. But nevertheless, because they were able to do that, <clears throat> it came out as well as it did. And it is a fantastic process if you can, you know, and it's it was really how we did the early days of the league as well. I was going to say, when you were when you were initially taking it up to Edinburgh oh. as a show, that presumably when there were no stakes beyond a desire to be successful and desire... ambition, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I think a lot of people listening to this will be either a few years ahead of or a few years behind that kind of point. Well, that's exactly right what it was. The league was exactly the same. It was, let's put the show on right here. You know, the, the Steve and... Um, Steve ran a little theatre company called 606 with an old good friend of mine, Gordon Anderson, who was a school friend of mine. And um, it was out of that that the league was born because we were all writing in pairs and exploring, but we weren't working together as a group. And Gordon sort of spotted this pool of talent and said, look, you should, you should work together, you should pull your resources. And they had a little slot that came up where they, they'd been at in a little uh, festival at the, at the old Soho Theatre, the cockpit theatre as was. And, um, and Gordon said, it was just the same as Sean, Gordon said, look, do a show and we'll put it on then. And that was, you know, sort of, we had six months to put that together and that's what we did. Same thing. Yeah, you know, kind of played, explored. It was just us. It was a pure experience. So identical. Yeah. And then, you know, and we had, we gave ourselves a couple of years of that with the league where once we realised we couldn't go on the stand-up circuit because it was death to put, to drop a fourth wall down after a stand-up had been on with sketch material. It, Steve, Steve's idea again, let's do, let's book out the Canal Cafe, make it do our own night. And, and that's what we did. And it was the same thing. You had a year of putting stuff together with only, you know, with, as you say, low stakes, small audience. And it meant that by the time you took it up to Edinburgh for a bigger audience, a lawful lot, lot of work had been done. And, and that work that had been done, some of it was kind of, I would imagine some of it was work like, you know, hard work. And some of it was work in the sense of play. Yeah. It sounds like the both of these well, that's, projects. That's are... always the creative process. It's always a dance between both, and and it, and you've got to get them in the right amount. You know, you can't just have the hard work without the play because it's deadly, and you can't just have the play without the discipline of uh, you know a tangible date when the show is going to be on or whatever, um, because you won't do anything. 
So it's, it's left brain, right brain, you know. So this is Jeremy, a, a very different... It's so interesting interviewing two people right next to each other with nary a breath in between. Um, fascinating to speak to someone so assured and so confident of their ability and yet so kind of um, unassuming, I think is the word. It was so lovely to meet both of these guys. But I think Andy has a, a kind of sense of internal power and confidence. And Jeremy seemed to me to be much more kind of gentle in his energy. And really, it's just, I, it was absolutely fascinating to imagine that working process of the two of them being round the same flat and just uh, working together for a week and watching movies and what I mean it sounds like just a dream of a process do a bit of background work with your best mate on a thing that you're mutually excited about why can't it all be like that so um we will talk a little bit more about the League of Gentlemen we'll talk a little bit more about ghost stories and all of those things are uh, coming up two little things in the meantime thank you for everyone who is uh, continuing to support the show as I have teased on one or two occasions the next phase of whatever whatever the membership of this podcast is going to be, a way of drawing you closer, that will be rolled out initially. I think it will happen, um, but we will have to see. I, I feel like it's going to happen. Um, and whatever experimental version of it happens, which that, that's a definite, that will be rolled out in the first instance to people who are regular subscribing donors to this show. So if you would like to get along to comedianscomedian.com slash donate, there's never been a better time to support this podcast because you get to you get to be the excited uh, people who start to hear the first little bit of buzz on the grapevine about some of the things that I'm going to start trying to put in place. You can donate regularly via with a, a small uh, one or two or five pounds. And someone said, uh, can you do seven pound fifty? Probably <laughs> go along to comedianscomedian.com forward slash donate. And you can support the show via PayPal, Patreon or Moon Clerk, which I think eight people do. It's, I mean, was it worth bothering? Yeah, yeah, it was worth bothering. But um, it's always funny to get an email from Moon Clerk and remember that that exists. So uh, thank you for those of you who are continuing to support the show, either by donating or by sharing it around and uh, telling your friends about it and walking up to people in the street and writing it on their heads in pen. Thank you so much. If you would like more information about my stand-up comedy tour, Like I Mean It, uh, one of the 20th best-reviewed shows at the last Edinburgh Festival, is now on tour all over the UK. And I've got about two-thirds of the tour left, maybe something like 25 dates left to go. Um, I've been really enjoying it. The first half is work on the, is, is the show show, and the second half is a big, flappy, loose workshop from Notes that, to my chagrin, is often uh, sort of more enjoyable than the first half, despite how much work went into the first half. There is, there's just two different things, and I'm glad I'm doing them the way around that I am. And uh, the first half is very enjoyable. It's a very strong show. The second half is just... It just makes me think... I, I This is a chat for another time. But it does occasionally make me think that... Um, I should just do work in progress for the rest of my life. I think it suits my energy. As soon as something becomes fixed, I find myself going, well, that is fixed and I know how this works. And it works. It really works. It's great fun. But it doesn't, it, it doesn't contain the same joy of discovery for me. And I think maybe I'm a joy of discovery person. That's all I have to say on that just now. Let's get back to this conversation with Jeremy Dyson. 
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Let's look at those collaborations, the league and working with Andy. Do you particularly have a role that leans towards the hard work or the play? And where, where do those, those teams, those different collaborations, are there people that, that lean towards one or the other? I think in the, in the league it was quite evenly balanced. In the, I mean, I love, I, I love both. You know, the play thing and the, just the laughter and the joy and the fun is the reason you do it. You know, that's the thing, that, that's your fundamental drive. Uh, that and wanting to entertain people. It's those two things. But I also discovered, uh, uh, which I never realised before, uh, you know, from sort of from doing the league, that I had an editorial brain, uh, that I was I was able to look at stuff and, um, you know, have a sort of instinct for the bits that were working and the bits that weren't. I mean, we all had that in the league. We, you know, they, the other three are extraordinarily gifted and talented people. It's a miracle to me that we found each other and that they should have all been in the same place at the same time, you know. And, and they were they were that from the start. I mean, you know, I met Mark in the end of 86, and, you know, he was, he was Mark Gatiss <laughs> then. He was, you know, he's the same person. And, you know, and Stephen Reese, I mean, they're the, the most unbelievable writers. I mean, it was intimidating when we started writing together because they were just phenomenal. And, I, you know, so many memories of... The first time they performed, we used, they used to write stuff, and then they they were sharing a flat together in Highgate. And um, you know, they, they you'd go around and they'd do the sketch for you that they'd written that that afternoon. And I remember going around and they'd written, done the Mau Mau sketch, the businessman telling the joke. And I, I you fuckers, <laughs> how have you written that? It was like the best thing you'd ever seen, you know. And because uh, we were all comedy fans, and you knew what you knew, you knew what you were matching against. And I, I couldn't believe the stuff that they they came out with. That, I still can't. That's fascinating to hear that you were intimidated oh, by yeah. it. Because I think I, I've certainly been in that in in collaborations before, where I've thought, how am I gonna bring myself up to this? How that's did you the beauty of collaboration, because that's what happens. Is you we had this saying that I I came across in, an, in a Leonard Cohen interview where he was talking about his time as a, when he went into the monastery. And he said that the monks were like pebbles in a bag and they polished each other. And I used to say that to Reese all the time. I used to make him laugh. <laughs> but we also thought it's true because that's what happens in a, when you're collaborating with people. You know, you get, to, you get to borrow off each other, but you also get to learn off each other and you, get, you are motivated by each other because, you know, most ambitious people and creative people tend to be competitive and but you use you use that in a positive way rather than a negative it's like they, they've done their thing and you think oh all right well I'm going to do my best to fire back and you know so it's uncomfortable and um you know 
scary, but also exciting because you find out what you're capable of. And I had that so much in the, particularly in the, you know, after the first Edinburgh show with the league where I always had a thing because I wasn't performing that I felt I had to pedal harder, you know, to earn my place. But that wasn't a bad thing because it made, it pushed me to sit down and work. Do you see, it's very easy to look at the league from the outside and because the other three members are so visually connected with specific characters and moments and jokes and it's it's hard for me from the outside to go, that's a Jeremy moment. Mm. Are, are you presumably, are you able to identify a particular flavour of that mix that you go, that is a thing that would not be there without me? Well, in the, you know, you can look at the things just on a purely mechanical level that you wrote, and there was, a, you know, there was an amount that I wrote alone, at least initially. And so, you know, you can sort of, I can see what those are. I mean, as to sort of the more, the more sort of critical view of what one's place in that is, it's like you can't see it because your face is pressed up against it, and also it's death to think like that. You know, if you start. You know, going down the road of how important am I to this enterprise? Uh, negatively or positively, both ways are a, fool, a foolish path to take. You know, it's much better to be purely practical, and and it's that lovely. Is, is it Henry Ford? It's one of the. It's the quote that the. I think Reagan used to have it on his desk, which is, um, it's it's remarkable what you can achieve if you stop caring about who gets the credit, and. It's much more exciting to just do it and, uh, you know, who cares? I think something that's really exciting about your collaboration with Andy Nyman is that you both have in 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 your backgrounds and in arguably your most high-profile projects, his work with Darren Brown, yours with The League, you were both the invisible person. You were both the behind-the-scenes. Yeah. You both had the kind of selflessness... To, to sort of disappear into it and, and do exactly that, to you kind know, of with, not was, care about the it wasn't, it was It was also just circumstance. Is I wasn't an actor with the league and and I did appear in the very first show that we did. And I wasn't shy. I was quite happy getting up on stage. But I, I just didn't have the, that skill set. But, you know, Mark, Stephen Reese are absolutely phenomenal. They're not just comedians. They're phenomenal character actors and they had they were from the get-go and I didn't do that and didn't know how to do that so it was all it was partly it was just obvious after that first show that it, that the performance aspect of it was about the three of them and it wasn't too much of a struggle for me to accept that I was very pragmatic about it it was more exciting to just be involved in the thing and whatever whichever way it shook down was the way to do it uh, but I do like the company of actors I think because because I don't do it, but there's a bit of me that, you know, most there's a big overlap between writers and actors anyway, you know, because you're working with character and, and imagining people. Um, I do enjoy being working with actors, working closely with actors and writing with actors. And it's a wonderful thing to be in a position where you write something and then you can immediately get it on its feet. You know, I didn't realise how spoiled I was for the first 10 years of my career because that was the norm. I just took it for granted to some extent it was only when I came out and started writing stuff where that wasn't the case that I realised how what a brilliant thing it is to work closely with actors and write with actors because you can you know immediately road test stuff 
So, you know, like, so with Andy, I was sort of, in a way, there was part of me that was repeating that. Although we, when we started talking about ghost stories, it, the, it wasn't, Andy wasn't going to be in it. It was, um, we didn't conceive of it uh, in that way. And then it was Sean that pointed out that we'd, fa- we'd created a lead role that was perfect for, <laughs> for Andy to play. You said before that post-league, you felt you were in, I don't remember the exact words you used, but when Andy was talking to you, you mm. found that useful because mm. you were in a, a sort of a... I'd forgotten you know, what, what, what was important. That was the thing, which is easy to do, and particularly when you, uh, you know, you're at that point in your career and you've done one successful thing and you, you start getting focused on success and you think, well, that was successful, so I've got to do another successful thing. And, 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 I was just, and you get distracted. You get distracted by status, you get distracted by... Uh, money or you know any number of material things and and the thing about ghost stories was it was oh no no it's not about any of that it's about the fun yeah it has to begin with you not just enjoying it but being in your sort of most fundamental it's about well what have you got to offer what's particular to you you know that's going to be interesting to other people and and it's and again it's not and not not mild interest it's passion absolute fascination you know what's your obsession and that's where you to do I think your best work that's where you've got to be I I get the sense from how you're you're describing it that that was there was an element of that that was kind of a rescue mm. and I, I think given the the preoccupations of the the listeners of this mm-hmm. podcast a lot of whom are creating things themselves and trying to suffer through the sometimes punishing mental health <laughs> aspects of that process was that something you were were you being rescued from that? Was oh, that undoubtedly. Of- and you know, there's a, there's there's a mystical side to it as well. There's, I mean, there's a whole brilliant thing that I'd, uh, you know, which again, anybody who does this will have these kind of experiences, little synchronicities and things. You know, all the, 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 there is a huge, hugely mysterious side to the creative process. So I'd gone to because I knew I was a bit stuck and a bit lost. Uh, and this was just before I got the call from Andy. It was sort of in, towards the end of. It must have been late 2007. And I'd found this kind of this kind of creative therapist type of woman who'd, who'd advertised, I think, or she might have written out of the blue. And it was someone you could do a workshop with, basically. And, uh, and like know, a one-on-one? Yeah, kind of, okay. you know, to sort of help recover your mojo. And, uh, you know. Okay, I'd never even... I didn't know that was a thing. Well, I didn't either, and it was sort of out of the blue. I think she'd been... A, she'd loved Funland, she'd, and she'd sort of written through, through my agent and said, if you ever need any help, this is what I do. Okay. And and then I must have kept the letter, and I, and I obviously knew I needed a bit of help, and you know I'm I'm used to asking for help when I need it. It's always a good strategy, and um, so I so, so I contacted her, and I, and she was over in Liverpool, so I went over to see her about two or three times, and you know and you just talked through it was just talking through where you were and what you were feeling. It wasn't even particularly deep therapy. It was just it was more practical than that. But anyway. The thing, it wasn't so much seeing her, although it was nice to do that. On the third time I went to see her, the last time I went to see her, I got a taxi back. She was out past Strawberry Fields and I got a taxi back to the station. And this ta- I got into this conversation with this lovely Scouse taxi driver who started telling me about his daughter. And out of the blue, I hadn't told him what I was doing there. He was talking about his daughter having these kind of problems with her career. And then he told this amazing story. I don't know if we've got time. We got time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, we did. Yeah. Um, he said. He said. You know, it reminds me of this story. He said that there's this 
there's a guy, there's a businessman, hotshot businessman, and he's on holiday on a Greek island. And he sat watching this old fisherman uh, who's, who's on the harbour, side of the harbour. And this old fisherman is making net, a net. And he's completely absorbed in this process of making a net. You know, he's, he loved, you can see he absolutely loves it. He's a wonderful, genius craftsman. And, you know, every second of this activity is, uh, is absolutely fascinating and wonderful to him. And this businessman's watching him, thinking that this is an incredible skill that you see. And he goes over to him and he said, I've been watching you for the past two hours, he said, and you're obviously a fantastic craftsman. And I'm a businessman. And I think I could take your nets, take what you do, and we could go global with them. And, you know, you would make a fortune. And I, I know what I'm doing. And, you know, we bring in a lot of money. And just think, just imagine, you know, you've got this money. You see the island over there? You could buy that island. You could sit on the beach from morning till night. You could do whatever you want to do. What would you want to do? And the guy just looks at him and says, make nets. Anyway, he told me this story and it was like a lightning bolt. It was like I'd gone to Liverpool to find out where was I going wrong. Yes. And I got the answer, but not from the person I went to see. <laughs> and the most amazing thing is just over a year later. No, hang on. It was two, it was two years. Just over two years later, I was back in Liverpool, which is a place I never go. You know, I think that was about the first time I'd properly been to Liverpool. With ghost stories, we opened ghost stories in Liverpool. And it, it was like, you know, the magical nature of that. <laughs> and, it was, and I'd found what my net making was. Oh, I'd, I'd rediscovered what my net making was. I feel like I should defend your creative therapist here by suggesting that she possibly put you in a state oh, of mind to receive that course, message. <laughs> absolutely. And, and the whole thing, you know, actually, it was my decision to... Seek an answer. That, of course, you know course. that, that kickstarted that whole process. But it was a process, and it just shows you that you know you are not an island, and you are not an individual operator. And anybody who's doing creative work has to grasp that you are part of a network. We're all part of a network, but you know you're acutely aware of it when you're doing creative work, and you know you're just like one of those nodes in the net. But you have to open yourself up, you know, to 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 receive what's coming along and what, what's crackling along those lines you know and um, and you need humility so you've got to be able to know when you're going wrong or when you're off beam because you're constantly off, going off beam and you constantly need your hand on the rudder to uh, to adjust course and sometimes you need a big adjustment and that was a big adjustment for me but you've got to yeah always you've got to be open to it so let's just go back to that week that you spent with Andy mm. on the beginning, the beginnings of the actual face-to-face creative process. What did that look like? How did you spend your time? Were you pacing around, going for walks? Were you staying up late and looking All out the that. window? What is, what is it? All like? of that, you know, but loving it because it was, you know, I think that probably the first, we talked about it, we didn't know what it was. And I think the first thing we did on the first day was... Oh, let's watch some of our favourite films, you know, having spent an hour just not really getting anywhere. And I think the first thing we put on was Dead of Night, and you know, which is the original horror anthology, and uh, and immediately it was like, ooh, <laughs> what about doing an anthology? 
and because uh, okay. I think you know because we we were halfway there anyway with this idea of three men on stools telling stories, but it was the thing about Dead of Night, of course, that makes it the best ever, is that the through line story is the best story. It's not a it's you know whereas all the other anthologies the through line story is a kind of com, you know a best a conceit yes just to hang the stories off yes uh, dead of night it, it, it's a proper story and uh, and so that was the that was one lightning bolt moment of oh yeah that's really interesting and and that becomes even more the case moving from the theatrical version of ghost stories to the movie yeah whereby the now I didn't see the theatre mm. show but Andy was telling me about it that the the extent to which the through line becomes much more like we were talking about a, a decision, a production meeting mm. decision to uh, take away the, the the moments in between the three stories when you return to Philip in the office. Mm. So it's uh, that's really interesting that you you also bring that up about the the nature of a through line being the most important story yeah. rather than simply a, a holding pattern for the stories. Absolutely, we knew we wanted to do something that was satisfying, you know, and and not a partial thing. So I think we set ourselves that challenge and it, you know, and solved it, Con- you know, continued to solve it. We didn't completely solve it on stage, the stage version. We were continuing, it was continuing to work on it right up until the edit, you know. So that's the other amazing thing with Ghost Stories is it was, it, we were so much in our place of combined fascination that we never tired of it, even though we were working on this thing for seven years, eight years, you know, if you take it from mid-2009 through to finishing the film, mid-2017. It was eight years of, of, of work. that ne- There was never a time, never a day on it where I'd had enough of it or Andy had had enough of it. It was consistently fascinating because it was, it was an amalgamation of all our fascinations. You know, it was, it was, the, it was the supernatural stories. It was... The world of conjuring, because I'm as passionate about that as he is. Ah, okay. Because uh, I'm how, and weirdly, I'm the, I'm partly responsible for leading him into that world because okay. it was my interest in it that fueled his interest. In I it. see. Okay. Um, it is uh, the the aspect of making stuff, you know, putting on a show, making a film, which which I adore. That's the thing I love the most is the making side of it, and uh, uh, and then it was the um, well, it was that. It was that, that. Those were the headlines, I would say. Uh, but there was there was so much of all of that in in this raw material, in this source material, that it, it just fueled the whole thing. It sounds like such a dream of a process. Oh, it was. was. Was there any conflict? Were there any tearing your hair out? Yeah, of were there things you disagreed on? Yeah, of course. Yeah, that was part of the process, as there, as there used to be in the league. As the, you can't do it without that, you know, because you if it's the things worthwhile, it's gonna have. It cannot be worthwhile unless there are hard problems to solve. That's what makes it worthwhile. Could, could you give us an example from, say, from the league, from like to kind of go back? Was there a hard problem to solve that you could think of? Some of the yeah, then one of them was. I mean, we never had ructions where we screamed and shouted and fell out with each other. Nor did me and Andy. That's not our temperaments. I don't like working in that way. Uh, I don't agree, and I know Andy doesn't, that that is somehow, that there's some romance or nobility or necessity for screaming and shouting at each other. I think it's bullshit. I think you can do it in a in a collegiate and considerate way. But nevertheless, yeah, absolutely, we, there were, you know, intense discussions. 
I mean, in the league, I think the, one of them was around the formats when it came to do the format for the TV series. Well, first radio series, then in the TV series. You know, I think we had a lot of... It wasn't clear, and there were differences of, should it just be a sketch show? Should it have this this, this high, uh, you know, this high concept thing of, of the town? Oh, okay. So there's something is kind of... I mean, it's it's hard to think of a bigger decision yeah, at the exactly. base of something. So yeah. you can see why, and you can see why that would be charged because it was, you know, because obviously the stakes were high in terms of if you if making that high concept decision was, um, yeah, you know. I love the word collegiate in that in that. In that said, that's it feels. I mean, it's a lovely word, and it's particularly nice to to kind of imagine that. Would did it end with people making compromises or like we trusted was, each other? So even if at the end of that stage, I wouldn't say everyone was 100% on the same page, but we had enough mutual respect that even if you didn't feel it and someone else did, you had enough respect for the other person to think, they might just know something I don't. And that, and that, and that was all the time. You know, that's, that was just one example. I mean, and, and, you know, it's not like anyone had the monopoly on it you could find yourself in you know on the winning side or the other side depending on what was you were talking about and the the similarly i was thinking of recently about the film of uh, the league of gentlemen's mm. apocalypse the 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 big central conceit of that of the characters discovering the real world yeah yeah that seems like a similarly yeah it was kind of root and yeah that, and that was, that was, that was a struggle make. yeah that didn't come easily at all it was, it was were a, you were you for or against? Where was your position on that? No, I was I, I was probably for it. I think I thought I was thinking we had to have a big idea at the heart of it. I mean, it was tough when coming to the film. I think because we were uh, it was at the end of a of a kind of natural cycle of create of a creative process, you know, of something that had begun life at the Canal Cafe in nineteen ninety five or ninety six, and you know. And we were at the, t- the tail end of that. And you knew that you'd sort of... It wasn't that you were exhausted with it, because clearly we weren't, because we came back to it, you know, this year and, and it was fully alive. But I think we'd been working non-stop on it and on that for a long period of time. And so uh, there, was, there was less juice or, or power at that point in time. It was more... There was more peddling, more work... Because the process was a was a completion rather than yeah. the beginning. Yeah, and I, you know, I haven't seen the film. Though. I don't know how it stands up at all. I wouldn't. I'm not trashing it because we 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 cared just as deeply about it as we did anything else that we did. Um, and I, and I remember really enjoying making it and and really laughing. Um, but it was at a different point in the cycle. That's all. And and with the the forthcoming tour, mm. with where have you begun work on that? We've started work. Yeah, me and Mark have been writing and. Yeah, and that must be the beginnings of a like that. That's kind of I, I can't imagine what it's like to come back after that length of time. Yeah, I mean, in the tour, I don't know what it's going to be yet, so it's hard to talk about it. Really. Sure, I mean, I know what the constituents are going to be, but I don't know what the whole is going to be. So it was interesting hearing Andy talking earlier about um, part of this process with Darren saying, "Okay, there's eight weeks, and at the end of it, we've got we've got nothing, and in eight weeks, we're performing to three thousand people in Blackpool mm-hmm. Tower." I mean, you, you've already sold out. <laughs> Got yeah, this similar, similar or wherever thing, you are. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and and you're still at the beginning of that thing. Does that put a different kind of pressure again on the? Like, can you still can you still find that play knowing that that weight is at the end? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you're sort of used to that, you know, because you've been through so many versions of it, you know, because, you know, we went, you would go through that with a second, third series of the show, you know, where you were, you know, you know that you're going to go to production at a certain date and yeah. you're, sort of, you're sort of used to it and in a way you're grateful for it because it's, much le- it's a much lovelier position to be in knowing you're going to write something and it's going to go on and be seen by people than the more speculative aspect where you can pour your heart and soul into a script that doesn't get made. And did you, post-league, were there scripts that you didn't get away? Oh, was there, yeah, yeah, yeah. What, so, what sorts of things? Because I'm, I'm really fascinated by not only kind of editing decisions, and I want to talk to you mm. briefly about, um, about the work you've done as a script editor, mm. but also just in terms of do you have... Or have you had, or do you still have other kind of lifelong projects that you are yeah. that you still want to get made? Yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. Any writer does. Yeah. Can you? Can you? Um, without giving too much well, away, I've can got, you talk uh, about? Uh, what yeah, I'm... I've got I've got um, film scripts that are written, and um, and I'm working on um, several series ideas at the moment, and that are in various stages of development, and um, so yeah, yeah, that's just the norm, yeah. It's a speculative business. When something is, that phrase, a failed script. I mean, a failed script would be one that you'd started and, uh, you know, and, and you hadn't finished. That's the only failed script, is, is when you've, if you started it. And that's the only failure in writing. I mean, you might have projects that have failed to be as yet greenlit, but if they don't happen... That there's at least an element of it that you've chosen not to keep going with that because, you know, we all know the stories of the, the, how many hoops things have to go through to, you know, from Harry Potter onwards to, and, you know, the temptation to give up is, is, is in the writer's hands, not in anyone else's. You know, you are... That's one of the beautiful things about doing this work is uh, you are the... Um, ultimate arbiter of that you know, it's, it's, it's only you that decides whether to give up on something sometimes there's good reason to do that but you know um, equally if you love something there's no reason to do that so I have a listener question for mm. you from Ian Robinson via the, the Comedian Comedian Facebook group and mm. um, he says when the league tour does he stand in the wings listening to the laughs, thinking of new jokes and generally shaping the show? Or does he just stay at home? And if it's the latter, does he feel he's missing out in some way? Uh, when it's, by the time it's touring, at least going off the other tours, it's, it's a fixed beast, uh, apart from the naughtiness that Mark Stephen Reese will throw in <laughs> from the first night uh, in you know, amusing themselves by changing lines and stuff. Um, so yeah, we don't, we don't tend to, once you're beyond, at least historically, once you were sort of beyond the previewing stage, it would, it was sort of a fixed thing. Uh, I would, I would, again, historically one of those big tours, I would go out, I'd sort of go and see it once or twice a week. Um, but I didn't, it was just, you know, they're pretty self-contained once it's up and running. They don't, they give each other notes, they don't really need. But apart from the one time I came to see them in Blackpool, I hadn't been to see it for a month or so, and they'd gone mad. <laughs> talk, to, talk to me about that. that sounds because it was so long that first tour, that first big tour, and I think they were they started to crack up, and um, they were imagining things. They they kept imagining that it could hear a popping sound out in the auditorium, and it was a kind of spirit. I mean, it was the kind of thing that would have started as a joke, and then. Oh, they were saying that on stage, right? Is that well, there was a point when 
they, they, Mark will tell the story where they came at the character in the card game sketch. Did you hear it? You know, because it was where the madness was. And how did how do you feel as a kind of? I, I would guess that there's a sort of almost a fatherly feel yes, because you're necessarily yeah, outside of it. I would, that's how I would have seen it. I, would, I don't think they would have seen it that way, but that's how I would see it. Yes. To finish, then mm. talking about ghost stories, we must wrap up. Mm. Um, I thought I saw a screener. I saw mm. it with a couple of friends, and we were properly. From the from the first five minutes, we started in that first story, mm. in the Paul Whitehouse mm. story. We started to get dragged into this rhythm, like inescapably. We put it on in the middle of the day, and we were a bit, oh, yeah, horror movie, okay, let, you know, not dismissive, mm. but not being hooked on the horror genre. I was thinking it's light outside. I'd be interested to see how funny this mm. is. I'd be interested to see how much it scares me. Mm. And by the end of it, I mean, it had got dark by that stage and we were turning the lights on in other parts of the house. What do you think is the is your your superpower as a creator in in terms of making something frightening or making something funny? It's it's a dance between creating and editing. You know, it's about it's about having those moments of you know inspiration, for want of a better word, where ideas just pop into your head. Having having enough of a uh, ability to recognise the good ones or the ones that will play well to an audience would be a uh, a more neutral way of saying that, and and then being able to flip to a sort of right brain position of being able to edit quite edit that quite brutally uh, and I, I i think i suppose if where i feel fortunate is like is i've got both sides is that I've, I've got an editorial instinct where i can read stuff it's easy when you're reading other people's stuff you know and so and see the bit see the, the stuff that's not helping falls away and you can see the the clearer stuff and but i also have a facility for you know having ideas <laughs> it would be I mean that would be a real superpower to be able to judge your own stuff as you yeah. would if someone else had handed it to you and it was theirs yeah physician heal thyself <laughs> good luck with that but you can get better at it and I've kind of learned to I've learned through exercising the muscles to get better at it than I used to be but still it's not the same as looking at other people's because you can't be that objective but I, I am a bit better at editing my own stuff than I was and and what's the what's the opposite of that question? What are the areas that you feel that you see other people do? You know, in terms of writing, mm. and you think, I wish I was as good at that element of it. Oh, confidence! Yeah, you know, when you see those brilliantly confident, like the Coens, you know, where they've just got their voice and they know who they are, and, they, and I'm sure it's a struggle for them. I'm sure it's not not effortless, but from the outside you just think everything they do is so it's it's so confidently them it's such a unique voice and they've mastered being able to render it beautifully and make it play to a you know a surprisingly large audience given how particular it is yeah so that's that's always the the, sh- the light on the hill is is that confidence in your own voice learning not to not to doubt what you have to offer but to see how valuable it might be yeah that's the lifelong struggle are you happy i adore what i do i just you know and i wake up and pinch myself and can't believe that i'm in this position and you know which isn't to say that it doesn't come without without daily challenges 
but that but they're all part of like that's grist to the mill that's all part of the joy of doing it you know because it never gets boring there's not a day when you wake up and think or if there is ever a day you think i wake up you think i wish i wasn't doing this then you very quickly make sure you're getting out of whatever that is that's making you feel that yeah so that was Jeremy Dyson. Thank you very much to Jeremy. Thanks to Andy Nyman for coming on uh, for yesterday's episode. Thank you to Amy and Louise for their part in making it happen. Thank you to Nathan Wood for very smartly and smoothly editing both these episodes when I chucked double the normal amount of work at him. Um, and thank you to you for listening to the show, sharing it to your friends, coming to see my stand-up show, courtesy of comedianscomedian.com forward slash tour, and indeed for supporting the show with a regular monthly subscription donation at comedianscomedian.com forward slash donate. No postamble today. I am simply swamped with things to do. Uh, A lot of them fun and potentially beneficial to you. I'll speak to you soon. Next week, Maria Bamford. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.